about the next patient, the 65-year-old lady? Yeah, this is a 65-year-old woman of Czechoslovakian descent who was diagnosed with IgG kappa myeloma in early 2012. She underwent radiation to her lumbar spine, which is where her initial symptoms were, and subsequently was treated with dexamethasone, bortezomib, and lenalidomide, which started in April 2012, along with zoledronic acid. She was referred for an autologous stem cell transplantation in November 2012 and had a clinical remission, but unfortunately was fairly short-lived by October of 2013. Routine labs, kind of follow-up labs on this asymptomatic patient showed increasing serum light chains, and uh, bone marrow was done right away and showed 90% plasma cytosis. In November of 2013, she received her first treatment with carfilzomib and dexamethasone. Uh, interesting side note to this case, we talked about the dyspnea potential in carfilzomib before. She was suspected of having a rare pulmonary toxicity with bortezomib and was being followed for that. In fact, had been on steroids to some degree for that. So there was some concern about giving her carfilzomib because of its potential pulmonary or at least dyspnea, possibly pulmonary toxicity. Any thoughts about this case, Maury? So this is a really tough situation. There's a couple of things. I think the biggest issue, number one, is her bad biology. This is a woman who has a minus 17P. She's got the P53 at 7% of newly diagnosed myeloma. And in fact, that fits because she got a stem cell transplant and had a response that lasted less than one year. Moreover, when she did relapse, she's a light chain escape. So let me just clarify. She starts out with IgG kappa, multiple myeloma, easily measurable IgG, but when she relapses, it's just kappa light chain. So there's been clonal evolution here. The myeloma cells that used to make intact immunoglobulins, they're not there anymore. Either they've been killed or they can't mature, and now she's making only the light chain when she was previously making. So this is bad biology, and it really calls for a very aggressive approach. So I'm completely endorsing the fact that she went on carfilzomib dex. That the real question is going to come up. If her counts hold up, is it really carfilzomib pomalidomide dex for someone with this aggressive relapse, carfilzomib cyclophosphamide dex, or depending on the response to carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide pomalidomide dex. This is a patient who needs lots of novel agent-based therapy, very aggressive therapy, because there's so many indicators that she's not going to do well. You know, it's always easy to look in retrospect, but in general, in a patient with this type of situation, would you have used maintenance in her, and what kind of maintenance? So she would be considered high risk, and if you just look at our MSMART guidelines, we do call for maintenance in this situation. I emphasize maintenance isn't proven, but our consensus at Mayo is to use maintenance and it's bortezomib containing in these high-risk patients. And we do use VRD as our upfront regimen for these patients, but we leave them on therapy because we're afraid there's going to be early breakthrough. And in terms of the carfilzomib pomalidomide dex, what do we know about that combination in relapse disease? So there have been a number of abstracts for it. And of course, you can't dissect out what would have been just as good with carfilzomib dex or pom dex alone. Did you need the triplet combination? It's unknown, but the triplet combination is effective. And again, I have 
grave concerns about this patient's outcome. We certainly know that the hematologic toxicity is manageable. If there are concerns, don't give four milligrams of POM, give two milligrams of POM. The data on the efficacy of pomalidomide at four and two isn't that dramatic, and you want to preserve normal marrow so the carfilzomib can be given at full dose, then I think that there's room for a triplet here. In terms of pomalidomide, any misconceptions you see out there in terms of the use of this agent in terms of clinical practice? Well, again, it's labeled only to be used in patients who've had prior exposure to a proteasome inhibitor and lenalidomide. It does require both. I have to be very honest because I've used it in trials for a lot of years, and it is really well tolerated. It's an extremely easy to give medication. And so, for example, I think lenalidomide is incredibly easy to give, but pomalidomide, in my experience, doesn't have the diarrhea, doesn't have the skin reactions, and with appropriate DVT prophylaxis, doesn't even have the DVT. It's really mostly blood counts. It's an awfully easy agent to use. In your practice with relapse refractory disease, Mari, how do you decide between carfilzomib, pomalidomide, or the combination? Some of it actually has to do with reimbursement issues because with parenteral drugs and Medicare patients, there's not an out-of-pocket. But with oral agents, there's still that donut hole that can be a real challenge for a lot of patients unless they can get some kind of waiver or, you know, there are a number of ways to get the donut hole waived for pomalidomide. That's part of it. Ability of the patient to come to the treatment center because carfilzomib 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, 16 versus the pomalidomide 28-day cycle, all those, I think, play a role in these patients. We were talking before about the debate about carfilzomib in the heart and lungs. Do you do cardiac screening on these patients? I do not. Any questions about this case, Eric? Yeah, so this was an interesting case socially. She was the first patient that Dr. Gertz and I saw today. And at the end of it, she was there with her husband, and they were very excited to meet Dr. Gertz and to have this opportunity. And I asked if she had any questions, and she took a minute and paused, and then she asked simply, will I survive? And, you know, I find that that's obviously a very vague question, but it is ultimately the question that's on the minds of all of our patients. Will I survive, or maybe put more specifically, how long will I survive? Will I be cured? That sort of thing. So she asked this question of you, Mari? Of us, yeah. And again, I'm very circumspect because I want to have patients maintain an optimistic attitude. She's facing challenges, but... She's never seen pomalidomide. She hasn't seen an alkylator since October 2012 when she had her transplant. So there are a lot of agents she hasn't been exposed to. Oral proteasomes, clinical trials were discussed briefly, and I think it's a mistake in these patients to try and make a statement about what you couldn't possibly know. So also, you know, relevant to this question that she asked Eric, just sort of taking a step back, how have you seen her evolution in terms of how she's learned how to cope with the situation? You know, some patients kind of have those coping skills. One of the patients we discussed 
early on, he sort of was ready for his death at any time and was fine with it. This patient, I think, has had the same level of nervousness about her survival ever since. And she came and her husband came with her, both very well educated with a lot of questions and intelligent and well-informed questions. But clearly, they wanted to hear something that would make them walk out of there feeling like her chances were better. And, you know, I have the same experience as Dr. Gertz mentioned. It's such a fine line trying to be honest with the patient but not take away all of their hope and their optimism. The honest truth is this patient, I think, is going to create in her mind a sort of a better chance for survival than she really has. She has fairly quickly relapsed disease here. She had a fish study which showed some adverse features and ultimately, as all of us know, including I think the patient, that she's not going to do well. I mean, realistically, it is kind of hard to predict the future. I mean, it's amazing what obviously has happened in this field and kind of relevant to that question. I think I'll just throw in here at this point. I'm kind of curious, Mari, what you see is the next agent or class of agents that you think might enter clinical practice. And I'm particularly interested to hear what you think about the monoclonal antibodies out there. It's going to be monoclonal antibodies. So at ASH, in addition to the elotuzumab trial, which is anti-CS1, which has no single agent activity, but appears to have activity when combined with lenalidomide or bortezomib, two phase three trials are underway looking at that. But now there's not just one anti-CD38 antibody, daratumumab, which really looks very exciting in terms of its single agent activity without toxicity. But there were two other anti-CD38 antibodies that were presented at ASH, and they also showed activity. So I think at long last, the myeloma doctors are going to get their myeloma equivalent of rituximab, and I think it's going to be chemoimmunotherapy like it has been for lymphoma for 15 years. Interesting. Do you see initially these agents coming into the relapse refractory setting and monotherapy or combined with other agents? Well, the way I see the drug being developed and presented, I think that's the strategy of the development, is showing it as single-agent activity, but it's inevitable because it doesn't have much hematologic toxicity that it's going to be combined with other refractory relapsed agents. So if daratumumab is active, then people will certainly want to look at daratumumab, pomalidomide, daratumumab, carfilzomib. It seems obvious. Any questions you want to throw back to Maury that we haven't talked about today, Eric? Yeah, a couple of questions. So the NCCN guidelines, as we, I find the myeloma guidelines to be a little less helpful than many of the other ones. There are so many different pathways, so many different choices. And then I think it's telling that at the bottom of those NCCN guidelines, the footnotes take up almost a third of the page because there's so many explanations and caveats and, you know, little explanations that are down there. I read through, Dr. Love, you had the meeting in which you asked different experts their opinion on various different treatments for myeloma in different clinical scenarios. And although there was some concordance, there was quite a bit of difference of opinion as to how, say, an elderly person with you know renal disease with myeloma would be treated as compared to somebody else. And I think that's, to me and my colleagues, the most confusing thing. There are seven of us. We meet at lunchtime. We have a heme path tumor board once every two weeks at lunchtime. And 
between us, the number of options for treatment is really kind of befuddling and mystifying. I'd like to know how you choose an initial agent. You know, if there is not any clear guideline, there are so many different options available. The bottom line is, do you doctors get together at the Mayo Clinic and discuss these cases? To me, that discussion is really valuable. It also can be confusing because we do things a little differently amongst us. I think it's the reality of both the science and art of medicine. So NCCN is what it is. It's a guideline. It's not the gospel, and it's 12 to 15 thought leaders in the field who are brought together to discuss ways in which to manage. And it's clear there is not one way to manage this disease. And of course, different individuals come from different backgrounds. So in Mayo Clinic Rochester, the head of our group is Vincent Rajkumar. He developed Lendex. So it's Lendex. You go to Mayo, Arizona, well, that's where Cyborg D was developed. That's what you're going to get. Dana-Farber, they pioneered VRD. You go to the Netherlands, and VTD is what they did. And they're all highly effective regimens that clearly have been shown to be effective. But we don't have those comparative studies to say, well, gee, you just gave me six choices, but you didn't give me any context on making the selection. Well, that's the reality of it. And that's why eight, 10, well-meaning, honest patient-centered physicians will give you eight totally different recommendations for myeloma. And of course, if none of them are right, none of them are wrong, it's reasonable and you try to do the best you can based on, is the patient a diabetic with antecedent neuropathy? Is the patient wheelchair bound with a performance status of three? Is the patient have profound cytopenia is that anything myelosuppressive is going to rock the boat. Maybe I'm just going to give thaldex because it won't affect their blood counts. And so they're all reasonable. Yes, it's confusing, but that's the state of myeloma today with so many different investigative tracks that have been pursued globally. Any other specific questions, Eric? Yeah. If you don't mind, Dr. Love, I ask my colleagues for questions, kind of Go the, for it. the real Go for simple it. questions that I Great. think come up often. Dr. Gertz, what's your go-to study or studies for surveillance of these patients and how often do you do them? Do you use, for example, the serum-free light chain assay? Do you use SPEP? Is there any value in beta-2 microglobulin, which is still recommended by the NCCN guidelines? What do you use right. or a combination of these to surveil your patients? Right. So monitoring patients either on therapy or off therapy there are no routine bone marrows. There's no such thing as I'm going to do a bone marrow every six months or a year. I generally do not do routine imaging studies either. However, I follow the SPEP, the involved immunoglobulin heavy chain, and the free light chain with every visit that I see them. Otherwise, there's no point to have a visit because I learn more from those blood studies than anything on my physical examination. How often do you see them? If they're not on any treatment, it's probably quarterly. Okay. If they had active disease, I'll see them every three months. But I need to follow all those markers because patients relapse in such different ways. And you don't want to be surprised like this patient who's 65 years old, the Czechoslovakian, whose IgG didn't rise and her kappa light chain exploded. That's actually increasingly common nowadays because... Patients are living so much longer, they're developing a lot of funky clones. Gotcha. 
And you had mentioned earlier in the program... Oh, beta-2 microglobulin I'm sorry, go ahead. has never been validated as a marker of response or relapse. It's a prognostic factor. It's part of staging. I don't follow it. Is stage of value to you? You know, we're asked with our new EMR to stage all of our cancers, and appropriately so, but it seemed, when I do it with my alum, I feel like I'm really kind of running through an exercise rather than doing something that's of great clinical utility. Well, things been validated in the novel agent era, so it is a reasonable guideline. And since you already have the serum albumin on your SPEP, Really, you're just asking for a beta-2 microglobulin. That's all you're really getting. And at least I think it's of no value to the patient. But for you to just have a general idea whether you're looking at 10 years, 7 years, or 4 years, I think that just kind of helps frame it in my mind. Sure. Earlier in the program, you kind of, if I got it right, you weren't really enthusiastic about the bone survey or the skeletal survey that we do. Well, we do it routinely in every new patient we see, no question about that, but you have to just be aware of its limitations. So if the patient says, my back hurts and they have myeloma and you do a bone survey and it's negative, you're not done. You can't ignore that complaint. There's a problem there and we're going to need to follow up. If I have a smoldering myeloma patient who has no symptoms but has a 6,000 IgG, before I'm going to say no treatment, we're going to observe you, I'm not going to do it just on a bone survey. I need a higher-end imaging study so that I know I'm not going to send this person out and three months later they're going to call me saying I can't get out of bed, my back hurts so bad. Gotcha. So you don't do that routinely, but you might do it based on the clinical status of the patient. Correct. And then the last question I've got, of course, you're aware of the 2013 Mateo study that was published in the New England Journal about treating patients who are high risk. They use different criteria for high risk, but certain high risk features predictive for early clinical progression, patients with smoldering myeloma. Are you at the Mayo Clinic, are you guys treating any of these patients with smoldering myeloma? So here's what we've done. First of all, there is a national trial in the United States of lenalidomide, placebo for high-risk smoldering myeloma, not just smoldering myeloma, not patients who have a 50% chance of going on to active disease in five years, but an 80% chance in two years. What are the criteria you're using for so, high risk? So first of all, if a patient has no crab symptoms but has over 60% plasma cells, we're calling them myeloma. If the free light chain ratio is greater than 100, we're calling them myeloma. If the patient has circulating cells, we're calling them myeloma. But we're not, and there's two criteria for high risk, Mateus and Mayo Clinic. And the NIH took their patients and did a concordant study between who is called high risk by Mayo and who is called high risk by Mateus. They were completely different populations. So we can't even define what high risk smoldering is. But in the US, the three cooperative groups have agreed that it is appropriate and ethical to do a placebo-controlled trial for high-risk smoldering disease. And that's what we're doing. So if placebo is one arm, then my standard is no intervention for these patients, but close monitoring. I mean, after the Mateus article, there were four letters to the New England Journal with, I thought, highly valid criticisms of the trial in terms of how it was managed. So for example, if a patient on lenalidomide, if the protein rose, DEX got added. If you were in the placebo arm and the protein rose, nothing was done. You had to develop crab in order to get treated. It's very, very different. There's a lot of stuff.